Every once in a while, I like to go by the Goodwill and uh, look at books. You never know what you're going to find there, right? I mean, yes, I got one person who feels me right there. Um, I love to just look through the books because every once in a while, and I have been instructed in the ways of finding like classic worthwhile books. Uh, we have somebody in this church who, who knows how to do that, and I've learned a little bit about how to find those good ones. Well, there was a time we were um, at the Goodwill, and I found a book that I was like, oh, this is, it was an old commentator's book, uh, kind of been updated a little bit, a biblical commentator, and so I was like, oh, that's, I'm going to take that. And so as we're checking out in the line to, to leave the Goodwill, the, there's an employee that she's, she's checking us out, and she just stops, and she just stops. And she's checking out the book that I picked up. And this is the cover of the book that she saw. I want you to see what she was looking at. And she saw that phrase, be satisfied. And she goes, what's this? I said, well, it's about a book that is in the, in the Bible that really talks about how to be satisfied in this life. And she said, I really need to know about this. Like, I really want to know what's in this book. And in, in very goodwill fashion, I said, no, I found it first. It's mine. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been to the goodwill. Like, the, um, it's amazing it's called goodwill because that's the last thing we show each other when we're in there. Like, if you have ever been into the, especially before the goodwill outlet on Patton Avenue, before it moved around to the front where it was shiny and you can walk in and you can, there's lights before it moved, it was like a fight club you got invited into to go into the back where the, the discount bin is, where it's basically by the pound. I feel like I have to give the catness before I go in because it's going to be a battle. Like, I'm pretty sure if you've never experienced that Goodwill bin coming out from behind the closed doors, it is the scariest thing I've ever seen. I'm pretty sure there was this old Russian woman who put me in a headlock and was like, not today, son, and pushed by and ran in. And I saw this mom throw her young son into the middle of the bin. Get that thing in the middle. I mean, it's like, what's happening? <sighs> <sighs> but the Goodwill, uh, I, I'm, it is like a fight club. It is. Uh, but now it's got lights in there and you don't, it doesn't feel as dark and heavy. But um, the truth is, this woman's reaction to the phrase, be satisfied, is something we all deal with. It's something we're all wrestling with. It's something we all think through. And it's ultimately why we do what we do. I mean, we go after whatever we think will settle our hearts. We go after whatever we think will make us be able to take the breath and go, <sighs> we talked about that a little bit last week. And um, we'll open the series. We, we, you know, I had the children all say with me, meaninglessness, like vanity. It's this phrase that's used over and over and over in the book of Ecclesiastes. 34 times the teacher, who we, we assume is Solomon, refers to things as meaningless, vanity, like chasing the wind. And I want to make something very clear. Meaningless does not mean worthless. Meaningless does not mean that these things are not important. It's not this uh, whatever view of things in this life. It's saying it's like chasing vapor. And what we did last week with the children was I had air in the balloon and I said, all right, I'm going to let something out now. Catch it. And they couldn't catch it. And the frustration, the chasing of vapors, this idea that somehow I can grab onto something that's going to give me life. Well, 34 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, 
Solomon says it's like chasing vapor to many of the things which we have actually pursued as human beings. Knowledge, pleasure, wine, huge homes, property, being in charge, full barns, full bank accounts, marriage and family, hard work, all of these things. Not saying they aren't important, but they are not given to satisfy our longings. We find ourselves trapped in the repetition of day to day. We talked about that a little bit last week, and we are unsettled. And like Solomon, you and I are confronted with the question, is this all that there is? And I don't think we like to be confronted with that question. Now, there are a couple of things about when you read a difficult book, when you read difficult passages, we have to consider two things. The book of Ecclesiastes is man's reasoning. There is a man who is limited in his knowledge, in his experience, and in his wisdom, trying to explain how life works. Ecclesiastes is man trying to figure out how to do life. And God, through the rest of the scripture, invites us to do life with him. Ecclesiastes is not a book that you can just take by itself. You have to take it in the context of the larger piece. When we encounter these passages in Scripture, that we can't just pick and choose. We must compare it to the entire book, which does reveal God's thoughts about how to do life. There is a stirring that happens when you read Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes opens with man's best attempt to find purpose on his own. Ecclesiastes only confirms that attempting to live life without God is chasing vapor. Attempting to do and find satisfaction on our own is like grasping at air. You can't grab onto it. It's why when people make it to the top of whatever they thought would make them happiest, they find themselves going, is this all there is? And the book of Ecclesiastes gives us a very real picture of that question being asked. In Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12, the writer writes, there is a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. Now, outside of Christ, before, um, when, when somebody hands their life to Christ, what they're saying is, I'm dropping my thoughts and my ways, and I'm, I'm wanting to receive your ways, Christ. I'm wanting to, by faith, grab onto these things that you have done, and I'm going to allow those things to change everything about me. I'm not Jesus. I'm not going to make you look like I want you to look. I want you to make me look like you. And so there's this receiving, this gift by faith. It's not by works, and it's this beautiful journey that you begin to go on. But before that, human beings have a way of chasing after what seems right to them. It's what we do. It's, it's, uh, it's our attempt to figure out how to live. What we chase after seems right to us. And I love that the writer of Proverbs says it seems right. He didn't say there is a way which is right to every man. Seems right. See, we don't... We're, we're kind of in that place where we chase after what we think will give us the most satisfaction. Um, when, you, when it comes to that idea of something seeming right, you, you look at the illusionist. Seems one way, then bam, freaks you out. You've got the movie, and the, you, it seems something is happening, and then the last three minutes, everything unravels. 
Something that seems right ends up not being as you thought it was. And thankfully, the scripture is full of those but then moments. I thought it would be this way. I thought something was one way. But then God introduces himself. And that's the beautiful thing. The arch of the scripture is God revealing who he is to people who are chasing after things that seem right to them. And God bursts into eternity. Hey, guys! And we're all like, whoa. Okay, this is getting too real. And Jesus steps into time, puts on flesh as God, and walks among us. And this but-then moment begins to unravel before our eyes. We were told of God's plans and his purposes and his timing and his rescue and now you and I are conflicted right we're conflicted because there was a way that seemed right to us but yet now Jesus presents a totally different side of things that I just don't know how to deal with I get frustrated by it. I thought God was one way, because we live in a culture where you can Google YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, anything you want, find out whatever you want about God or gods or goddesses or the universe or anything you want. And there's so many opinions out there, and we're trying to form our opinions. And the scripture is God going, here's who I am. Here's what's gone wrong. Here's my plan. Here's hope. And we're conflicted. You know, it was interesting. I tell this story all the time because I think it's been a huge reminder to me that most people have many views about God that seem right to them. But when God steps in and encounters us and he squashes all of our false narratives, we're conflicted. Because when you have a false narrative about God, you just live based on that false narrative of God. And then when truth shows up, you kind of have to deal with the truth. You kind of have to go, man... Maybe my thoughts were wrong, and we don't like to do that. But we were in um, we were in China, and I was we were with a team, and we did this coffee house thing, and there were performers, and then I just read simply read a version of the story of the prodigal son uh, through a translator. So it felt like, how in the world is anyone figuring this out? How is anyone hearing this? This is so boring. I don't get to use my, my humor. They don't get my humor because it's not as funny, and, and they think I'm ridiculous. And, uh, but, but I read this story of the prodigal son, and this dude stands up, grabs the microphone, into the microphone, and says, this is a very wonderful story. Okay. I was like, all right, well, why don't we talk afterwards? We sat down, and I just said to him, you know, being in China, I just wanted to get a lay of the land. I said, well, what do you know about God, about Christians, about anything? He said, the only thing I know is that God only helps those who help themselves. It's the only thing he knew. And I said, well, what did that story tell you? He said that that's not true. He thought something was one way. He, there was a way which seemed right to him, but that way would have killed him. And God saw fit to introduce this wonderful story about a father and a son all the way on the other side of the planet to say it's not as you think it is. And when we read through Ecclesiastes, there is an unsettledness that happens in us 
And Solomon, as we continue this morning, will point out these things about time. We get unsettled about time. Knowing that it's short, we're asked to consider the numbers of our days because it's the beginning of wisdom. Death is mentioned. Injustice is mentioned. Oppression, envy, being alone. But what becomes abundantly clear in Ecclesiastes 3 and 4 is God's total control over all of those things. He being in charge of all of these things and over all of these things, he is not on a throne that he is shaken when things happen in life. He is not unaware of what is going on, but completely aware. And we as human beings, feeling the effects of the fall and sin, we do terrible things to each other. But yet somehow God still steps in and brings meaning to the mess. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, starting in verse 11, um, before these words, Miss Sue spoke wonderfully, a time, a season for every activity. And I want to encourage you to go through and read the times and the seasons and the activities that are mentioned. Much construction, much deconstruction. There is a lot that goes on in there. And the one question I want to ask you about those poetic and usually beautiful verses that are quoted very often and in song is are you grasping at a season that God's not led you to? Are you grabbing onto and longing for a season that God may not have you in? That's all I want to say about it. But if you read through those things and go, I'm grabbing at that, but I think I'm here, something will shift in your approach to life, I promise you. When you come to terms with a God who is with you in even the deconstructing seasons of life, your life will be impacted. If all you're hoping for is those constructing times in this building and this awesome and this taking in and you're not there, you will be miserable. But in accepting God's seasons and time and knowing these words that we are about to read makes all the difference in the world. Ecclesiastes 3.11, yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. So I concluded there is nothing better than to be happy and enjoy ourselves as long as we can. And people should eat and drink and enjoy the fruits of their labor, for these are gifts from God. And I know... That whatever God does is final. Nothing can be added to it or taken away from it. God's purpose is that people should fear him. There will be a dissatisfaction with what we experience and gather here because we aren't meant to find our meaning in any of these things. As we mentioned last week, um, Solomon will continue with different areas that are troubling to us when we look around? When you look around, you see injustice, do you not? If you don't, you're not looking. (laughs) We see injustice. We see death. We see selfish motivations for work. We see loneliness. All of these things under the sun, Solomon describes as vanity, meaninglessness. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16... I also noticed that under the sun there is evil in the courtroom. Yes, even the courts of law are corrupt. I said to myself, in due season, God will judge everyone 
both good and bad for all their deeds. The teacher complains that the most just place on the earth is actually now full of injustice. I think we've struggled with that. I think we recognize that and we don't know what to do with it, do we? Who am I? What can I affect? How is this going to happen? But then the teacher turns to God's justice. And for some, that strikes great fear in their heart. And for some, it strikes great joy to know that one day all the injustices that we have seen and experienced and those who have been victims of the injustice, those things will be dealt with. To know that those who have been responsible for the injustice, God will have the final say before them. That brings great hope to one who looks around and sees injustice. It doesn't mean we don't get involved. I believe we are. Part of bringing and seeing the kingdom swell is that we act as people who love justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly with our God. But when you look around and all you see is injustice... You can begin to go, God, really? What's it worth? What can I do? And you throw your hands up in the air. Of death, the teacher says that both humans and animals die. Do we really have any advantage over them? You're looking at this fatalistic point of view through these words. Is there really a difference? Does it really matter what we do? Of oppression in Ecclesiastes 4.1, again I observed all the oppression that takes place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed with no one to comfort them. The oppressors have great power and their victims are helpless. The teacher goes on to say that those who are dead, man, they're better off than the oppressed. And then he goes, there's another group of people who are even better off than the dead. It's the people who've never been born, who've never had to experience oppression. So it gets pretty dark. There's some moments of, man, this is like a Timothy Burton movie and all Halloween, Christmas stuff and dark. You know, it's interesting that Solomon would say these things about oppression because if you know anything about Solomon's reign, kind of how he ruled <laughs> in 1 Kings as the, the torch is being passed to Solomon's son, Rehoboam, 1 Kings 12.4, your father, the people come to him. Your father was a hard master, they said. Lighten the harsh labor demands and heavy taxes that your father imposed on us. Then we will be your loyal subjects. Not really knowing what to do with that, he turned to his older council people. And they said, dude, you need to lighten up on the people. This is crushing them. Rehoboam did not like that advice, so he turns to his younger advisors, the youngers. See, we like to think of it the opposite way, right? Nowadays, it's like we would think the olders are wanting to crush people, and the youngers, we're wanting to... Well, in this day, no, it was the olders who were like, we're wise, we've seen the crushing effects of this, let's stop it. The youngers are like, no way, here's what they say. The young men replied, this is what you should tell those complainers, that you know where they're headed here. This is what you should tell those complainers who want a lighter burden. My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. Yes, my father laid heavy burdens on you, but I'm going to make them even heavier. My father beat you with whips, but I will beat you with scorpions. (laughs) And unfortunately, the scorpion beating direction is the way Rehoboam wins. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds good. I like that. Yikes. 
eventually this decision to not lighten up on the people split the kingdom. So when we see oppression and we experience oppression, we can look around and go, man, is this really all that there is? This, is this it? And it can cause this sense of defeating. And in Ecclesiastes 4.4, 4, he continues in his observation, Then I observe that most people are motivated to success because they envy their neighbors. But this too is meaningless, like chasing the wind. Nothing new under the sun, man. Keeping up with the Joneses has been around since the beginning. Why are you doing what you're doing? Well, to keep up with them. Well, why did they do what they did to keep up with them? Well, why did they do what they did to keep up with them? And the cycle continues. You feel it? (laughs) You feel it? I do. (laughs) We may never say it out loud, but there are many times we're motivated to succeed simply because we don't want others to think we're a failure. And like all these other things that Solomon has mentioned, it is like chasing the wind to live that way. So what are we to do with this? I believe... That Christians are the only ones on the planet that can truly find joy in the vanity. And I don't mean this in a disobeying the scripture way. I do believe that for us to try and find our meaning and our purpose in any of the things that he has expressed here is vanity and meaningless. I do believe that it's like chasing after vapor. But I believe that God's purpose for us is bigger than any of these things that we can chase. Last week, Solomon's words helped us to see that satisfaction is unattainable from the things under the sun. And that phrase, under the sun, this is where all vanity or grasping at vapors goes on. But when we understand the one who made all things has invited us to relationship with him, how we interact with the vapor changes. How you and I interact with the vapor, the meaninglessness that we see around us, it all changes. Solomon's words point to God's total control and power over all things. The further we get into Ecclesiastes, we will see how God being God and man being limited, when we acknowledge these things and fearing the Lord begins to happen in our lives, the shape of things change. We don't view life from a fatalistic point of view, and I know I have heard many people say it this way, well, if God's going to do what God's going to do, then it doesn't really matter what I do. Well, if God's in charge, why even pray? If, I, you know, if God's going to do stuff that I can't stand in the way of, then why does it even matter? That sounds noble, but it's not spoken from a place of faith. It's spoken from a place of hopelessness. It's despairing. And that does not, does not send the message of us trusting in a God who does have our best in mind. But fortunately, we have all the scripture to journey through. Thankfully, we experience grace. See, fatalism leaves no room for grace. A fatalistic view of life, of purpose, of meaning, leaves no room for God's grace to interrupt us. God's timing with Jesus helps us begin to make sense of the troubling we see in Ecclesiastes. The Bible is a whole book, and what we now know about Jesus can and does make sense of how to navigate the difficult in this world. But we have to look at Jesus. In Galatians chapter 4, but when the right time came, when the right time came, 
God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. Unlike Solomon, the Apostle Paul helps us understand a very important moment in history that changes everything. God is not just interacting in the world as this over all things God, but he is this God who comes incredibly close, incredibly powerful God, incredibly close God. Not distant, not hands off, but close. And if you follow the way of scripture, he came close in a box, he came close in his son, he came close in his spirit, and it does not get much closer than within. All-powerful God, very close, not distant, not hands off. And as a child in his timing for us, freeing people from the trappings of this life, Jesus comes into the world And he helps those grabbing at vapor, searching under the sun to be filled with whatever and whenever we can to truly be filled with the presence of God. Changes everything. Our identity changes, our meaning changes, our purpose changes. A child of God. And as a child, we see our Father has a purpose for everything that goes on in in our life. Every season becomes an opportunity to ask God to accomplish his long-term goal in our life. And what is that goal? Romans 8, 28 through 30 points to the big picture. And, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his Son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. See, God's purpose in the earth is that his people would reflect his son. You see, in this life, you and I aren't given an explanation for everything. And if you think you're owed an explanation for everything, or we deserve an explanation for everything, we're not going to get it. Sometimes you don't get an explanation for why. I think that's what we think. If if we had an explanation for why, we would be so happy. We would be able to move on. You don't get. The scripture does not promise us explanations. But the scripture gives us God's promises. And as his people, that's all we have. As his people, I can't explain to everyone why what went on happened. But what I can do as a pastor and as we as Christ followers interact with each other is we share God's promises with each other. We share that in God's purpose, he is shaping himself in us. That is a huge promise. So that it helps me know that, man, in my suffering, in oppression, in injustice, in times of good, in times of bad, God's accomplishing his long-term purpose, and that is for me to look like Jesus. 
I don't know how he does it. I don't know why he does it. I don't know why it's so slow going. I wish it was a lot faster. I don't get it. But I know that that's what he's doing in every season and in every time and in every activity. So when I tell you that Christ followers are the ones who can find ways to enjoy the vanity, I don't mean we're running around pleasure seeking. I mean that we know that everything we've received is a gift from God. Because if God is going to accomplish his purpose in us, there's nothing we want more as Christ followers. And if there's something you want more than God to accomplish his purpose in you, you've just identified your idol. This is where Jesus brings these things. Everything is made beautiful in its own time. But you and I, like Solomon, are frustrated that we can't see God's work from beginning to end. We don't always get an explanation, but we have his promises. As the band comes and closes this morning, often when people are wanting to know God's will for their life, typically they're asking about the unknown. We want the map, right? I want to know from here until next year what's going to happen, what I should do, what my decisions should be, where I should go, who I should marry, what school I should attend, should I do this, should I do that? But the beautiful thing is we do know God's will. He has revealed it to us in the scripture. What if we didn't function on the, oh man, I wish I knew the unknown will, but we functioned as people who knew the will that God has already revealed. What if we woke up every morning, we were like, God, today, whatever happens, you're working in me to form in me Christ's character. Like you're wanting me to reflect you and look like you to the rest of the world. So whether it's good or it's bad, you're at work and I can stand on that. I don't know what today's got. I don't know where I'm headed. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what unexpected things are going to happen. I'm walking into a job that's tough. I'm walking into a family that's tough. I'm walking into walking with kids who don't know what they're doing, who are little heathens, who all they want to do is hurt each other and break things. And I don't know how to do this. But God, you're working in me. You're shaping me. You're changing me into the image of your son. And that's bananas. Like, this is what he wants to do. In us. And as his people, we don't look at this, woe is me, God's doing whatever. We say, God, thank you. Who am I that you would be mindful of me? If you want me to reflect your son to people, you got a lot of work to do, God. And God says, Yeah, I know. But that's on me. It's a beautiful story that helps us get from Ecclesiastes, which the reason I love this book is because it causes a stirring in me that unsettles me for this life and points me to Jesus' arrival in the New Testament. The promise of the one who would come and fulfill and give meaning and make us whole. That's what we want more than anything in this life. And God has promised that in Christ Jesus. The gospel tells us that when we see injustice, God will be the final judge. And as his people, we can know that he is the only just judge. And to meet him covered in the mercy and grace found in Christ is joy. What we see in oppression, God will punish the wicked and he will lift up the broken. I told you some 
that strikes fear in the hearts of, but in others, it causes great hope to know that all the injustice and all the oppression in this world will come untrue. God will make right what has been wrong. What we see in death, we know, is not the end, but resurrection, as C.S. Lewis calls it, the final grace. To walk into death is to experience grace because of Jesus. And what we see in loneliness, Jesus no longer calls us servants, but he calls us friend. You know, we do live under the sun. We live under the sun. All the descriptors of the things that are vapor, we see, we wrestle with chasing and hoping that they'll give us meaning. But living under the sun, we do not have to do it alone. The gospel tells us that God put on flesh and he walked among us under the sun. He faced the same temptations to find his meaning in vapor. You remember when the devil tempted Jesus? He tempted him with vapor. He tempted Jesus with vapor. He tempted him with the meaningless things that we see in this world. And Jesus stayed fixed on who he was and where he was headed. And he was not swayed. And then Jesus displays another way of living. How to, how to take back the vapor. And here's the image I want you to leave this morning with. I believe that there are many of us in this room who have got our fists closed on vapor. And we are afraid to open our hands simply because we will see that they are empty. I believe that. I believe that we don't want to open our grip. We don't want to loosen our grip because we know. (laughs) We got it in us. God has put eternity in our hearts and we are seeing ourselves right now going, I I know it's empty. I don't want to let go because if I open my hand, I will totally see that he's right. Vapor. But the beautiful thing about approaching life this way is that everything God puts in our hands is a gift. We don't grab at it. We don't reach for it. We don't grasp onto it and think it's ours. We receive it because we know that in all things, God is working his purposes in our life. And that is to form a people who look like Jesus. This morning, as we we finish our time, there'll be some families around the room with a plate of bread and a cup of juice. That bread representing the body of Christ that blood representing, that, that cup representing the blood of Christ poured out for the forgiveness of sin. Our chasing of vanity. Our hoping that meaning will come from something other than God was forgiven on a cross. We were reconciled, brought back into relationship with God, the one who gives meaning and purpose and life. But it came at a great cost. Jesus laid down his life and took it back up again to prove that he is the rescuer, the one who calls us out from under the sun, chasing after vapor, to know how to interact in this world, to live life full. And so if that's you this morning, you've placed your faith there, then we want to invite you to this meal. If you're looking around this room going, man, I don't even get this Jesus thing. I don't even know what this is about. Feel free to observe. But for those of us who are taking this meal, this is just an act, not a, it doesn't save us. It doesn't make us more spiritual, more holy, more anything. It is a remembrance, as Jesus said. Anytime you take this meal, remember me. 
Why would he say that? Because we forget him. Why would he say, remember me? Because I guarantee you this week, we forgot him. We, not you, we, me. I forgot daily dependence. And I'm reminded where my dependence and my trust is every time I take this meal. There will also be some people standing over here, and I'll be standing over here, that if you're in need of prayer, and you're just saying, hey, I'd love to be prayed for, this is your time as well. Father, I ask that in these moments, we would not chase after vapor. And Lord, you would help us loosen our grip. Lord, you would help us put these things down that are not causing satisfaction because they weren't meant to. Thank you for revealing that there are things under this sun that we can interact with in an appropriate level now, not finding our meaning or our hope in them, but saying, God, thank you for being my meaning and my hope. And Lord, I will take everything I get to experience in this life, trusting that you are forming your son, your image of Jesus in me. Thank you for helping us know how to live life. And I do ask that if there are folks in this room who continue to say no to your lordship, who continue to run from you, that God, you would invite them in and they would trust Jesus and love him with everything they have and love their neighbor as themselves because you loved us first. It's in your name we pray. Amen.